um, I think there's lots of meaningful discussions about how we price our work and because we don't want to um, depreciate the whole value of the category by making things cheap, but we want to make it as accessible and inclusive as possible, especially to, to folks who are marginalized, don't have, don't have a lot of, of money to spend on things like this. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro, but... As always, the show is never about me. It's about who I brought, and I have brought a doozy of a person for you. Welcome to tonight's events with uh, the founder of Leverage Play, the designer behind Diegetic Games, and creator of Story Synth, which we will get into. I would like to welcome to the show Randy Lubin. <sighs> Jeremy, thank you so much for having me on. I discovered uh, Draw Your Dice. I feel like a couple weeks back and have just loved diving through the archive and it's just such a good resource to the community. So thank you for having me on and thank you for the show. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, as always, Randy, for those who may not be aware of who you are, would you just give a brief introduction of yourself along with some plugs so that people can find you, get in contact with you because I can't guarantee that they will make it throughout the entire episode. So I want to make sure they can find you and buy your stuff. Sure thing. So my name is Randy Lubin. Pronouns are he, him. And I have a bunch of different presences online. Uh, so my, my personal website, randylubin.com, uh, will direct you to other places. My Twitter handle is also at uh, randylubin. And I tend to post about all my things there. But if you want to check out specific projects, Leveraged Play is my serious games consultancy where I design games for organizations to help them explore the future and explain the present. Um, so you can check out some serious game stuff there. Uh, and I also write about it on my blog, uh, which you can get it to at my main site. And then Diegetic Games is my consumer game studio. And it's uh, just about, you know, fun, easy storytelling games, some tabletop, some LARP. And most of those games are also on itch at randylubin.itch.io. And uh, what other presences do I have? I think that probably has you covered, and you can find other ones from there. Uh, StorySynth, as you mentioned, is a uh, web platform I've created to make it as hopefully as easy as possible to go from idea to playing a game if you're making a prompt-driven storytelling game. And you can check that out at storysynth.org, and I'm sure we'll talk about that soon. Yes, yes. Uh, amazing. And yeah, there's a really helpful intro video over on YouTube on Randy's channel where you can check out uh, how to use Google Sheets or Excel or whatever your sheet choice is and get yourself set up for story synth goodness. Um, in addition, Randy, as always, is an additional icebreaker to this show. What has been your path all the way up to sort of leverage play and diegetic games? You know, what was maybe your first role-playing game that got you really interested in the hobby? And sort of what was the first spark that said, ooh, I could design games? <laughs> so um, I got into designing games pretty much from when I started playing games. I was storytelling games. And, I, and both sort of came to me a little bit later in life. So um, my, my first career, which is kind of still happening a little bit, is uh, in the tech scene. Uh, early stage tech startups um, helping to make cool new emerging technology do great things for people. Um, and uh, so I moved to San Francisco. I was in my 20s. Uh, one of my favorite ways to hang out with people was playing board games. And uh, through that, I kind of discovered two things. One, there were some board games that were uh, that 
advertised themselves as storytelling games, but while they were fun to play, didn't tell good stories. And that kind of gnawed at me like, huh, I bet I bet I can make a game that is like fun to play, but also yields like an interesting story with a good narr- narrative arc and good characters. Um, and at the same time, this is probably like late 2013, I played a couple of my first like role-playing games. And my entry to the hobby was in the like quirky indie side of things. So I think my first three were Fiasco by Jason Morningstar, uh, Microscope by Ben Robbins, and um, I think a hack of Lady Blackbird by um, by John um, John Harper. Harper. Thank you. Yeah, and so like my entry was very much the like quirky indie bespoke mechanics side of things, which I loved. And so with uh, with those two impulses at the same time, the introduction to the tabletop scene and the uh, impulse to create like more card games that told good stories. I started working on my first game, which was a game called Platypus. My collaborator on that is Raf D'Amico, who uh, is currently designing a game called The Zone, which is super cool, and you should have him on the show. Um, and and there from there it was like cool. I just designed a thing. It wasn't really in conversation with a bunch of other storytelling game designers. It was just like the two of us off in our own world, being like, what would make an interesting game? So. I like look fondly back on that because there's no, there aren't strong connections to other streams of design. Uh, but but in any case, we, we designed that, we released it um, sometime in 2014, and from there I, I started fo- getting a lot more into the indie storytelling game scene, understanding some of the different games and conventions that were happening, and uh, so that was sort of the start of Diegetic Games. Uh, I was lucky to find an awesome scene of local designers in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, uh, through like a quirky startup thing, we had access to this huge Victorian mansion in uh, in San Francisco, and would just hold these playtest um, days, like once a month or so. Uh, I was co-hosting that with Jay Lee of Vermilion Games, and uh, she's just a phenomenal designer. And um, and she was also my like gateway to LARP and American Freeform LARP, and that was that like completely blew my mind because I went from like oh there's this like weird cool tabletop thing to like oh and you can be embodied and acting and like scratched this itch for improv and acting that I didn't even know I had. Um, so that was super cool and, uh, just got to meet like more and more great designers in the Bay area. And, uh, from there it's, you know, probably around that time, maybe a little bit later, um, got into the, uh, the serious games through, uh, some friends of mine at a, a company called scout.ai, uh, where they, we had been talking about games for a while. They loved games. Um, and, and I love games and they had the idea to make a game around elections and how, um, bad actors might manipulate election, elections and how, more importantly, I guess, how technology intersects with elections. And so we teamed up and created this game called Machine Learning President, um, which was a like mega game. It had, I think we had 50 players playing it. Um, we ran, ended up running it twice. Uh, it was an in-person thing. We were running around, lots of coalition building. We had a little station that was like an ad buying table with like dem- interesting demographic info. We had a, a tech bazaar. Um, I think it was even like a black market tech bazaar where it was like, oh, here, we can get some speculative new tech um, and uh, and figure out how we can use it to influence the, the elections. And so it was just like this lovely experiment in like applied games. Um, we got a bunch of people who would never have described themselves as gamers, and they, they were LARPing. They were loving hamming it up in character. Uh, we, we did a first run in San Francisco. We did a second run um, uh, in collaboration with Peter, I'm forgetting his last name, from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, um, in Chicago. And so we, we flew out, we did that. We had a, a former U.S. senator show up uh, to that. So it was just like one of those, like, it was started as like a fun project or idea, and suddenly, like, we had some very serious people playing it, and that was just awesome. And so from there... 
Um, one of my collaborators on that, whom, whom I brought in, is this guy, uh, Mike Masnick, who is the founder of TechDirt, which is a news site that covers the intersection of tech and policy. It's, I think, one of the, the best places for really insightful commentary on the intersection of tech and, and government, governance and society. And so he and I just started teaming up for game after game that's been on the serious game side. So um, most recently, we designed a game about the future of money for Mozilla. Uh, prior to that, we did uh, a successor politics game called Threatcast 2020, which was in the lead up to the 2020 election. It was very focused on like how might bad actors be using technology in the very near future and how might we you know, prevent them from, from doing so or mitigate the damage. Um, so, so lots mm. of serious games on that side. And so uh, over the past few years, Leverage Play has, I've been lucky enough to be able to spend more and more of my time on serious games too, which is just a, an absolute treat. Wow. Um, uh, amazing. Wow. Very, very cool history. Uh, I, one, one initial question I have, since you came a little later into game design, coming from a tech startup background, we talked a little bit off mic about how you're looking to really add technology to the modern landscape of game design, but what have you found that's been applicable from your tech startup career into game yeah, design, so right? Cause we're going to, potentially talk about something like StageGate later, which uh, I don't know if it, based on the article you sent me, it doesn't seem like it was focused around game design. It seemed focused around very like science style um, iteration. So yeah, what what did you find that was applicable from that period of your life into this new period? Yeah, of your life? a ton actually. And um, wow. a, a ton across the board. So I think the two biggest areas there was crossover. One was in the approach to prototyping for a startup and the approach to prototyping and playtesting for a game have tons of crossover. So if I'm working on a startup mm-hmm. idea, I will um, jot down a bunch of directions it might go and then race to test it as fast as possible. And depending on exactly what the idea is, that test might be uh, might be, just be a survey that's sent out. It might be something I draw uh, with pencil and paper, like if the interface is a key part of it, and I share that with with potential users and get their feedback. Or you know, maybe it's just quickly coding up something that I can then share a link and just, you know watch somebody screen share as they look through it. But the idea is to like race to as fast as possible, get something that's testable, and uh, sort of adjacent to that, it's focus on the biggest risk first. So in a startup, depending on the idea, the biggest risk might be something technical if you're trying to do something really hard that hasn't been done yet, um, or it might be something on the market side. You just don't know if users are interested in whatever it is that, that you're trying, trying to solve their problem with. And so uh, in, in games, you've much the same thing. So sometimes you might be testing a very tricky new mechanic, and sometimes it's like, uh, well, the rules here are complicated. Am I doing a good job explaining the rules? Or you know, is this thing balanced? And so... Again, that combination of like race to play test as soon as possible. And I, I'm a huge fan of playstorming, which um, I think Vidi talked about a few episodes back. Like that, yeah. that's just the best. Like <laughs> bring an idea to the table. It doesn't have to be fully baked. Just start testing. That it, that's not too far off from my, my attitude towards some startup stuff as well. Um, so mm-hmm. that's, that's some of the stuff that I bring over from the tech side. I think the other big category is just thinking things through from a like user experience design. And that, and I think this will probably come up later in conversation too, but like, making it so that you're thinking about the, the user experience from when they first hear about your product or your game through to after the game or the experience with the product um, live is over. And really thinking about the, the journey throughout the entire thing and making sure you're best setting up the, the user or player for success and, uh, and bringing, bringing all of the uh, different uh, design lenses in sort of up and down the design stack from like the very specific visual elements to what they're thinking about when, trying to have a model of like what's their cognitive load, what's their understanding of, of what they're engaging with, all that. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, that's, I think, then what's going to be really cool, uh, I think will be an easy transition, is let's, let's get into the meat of some game, right? Uh, that game in particular, I think, is going to be behind the magic for us to start with because you talked about how you got exposed to the LARP scene, you found out you had an itch for improv that you didn't really know you had before, and it seems like this is also within, like, through play is also like, hey, we're just going to run as many improv scenes raw as we can. Let's let's just gamify it. Uh, so what was the spark for Behind the Magic, as I always start this the off? The spark actually lay in an earlier game I had made for the 200-word RPG design uh, contest, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's still going, but for a while it was like a, a once-a-year-ish thing. Uh, you had to compress a whole game into just 200 words and share it, just plain text, which is a wonderful idea for a game jam. Um, and so I had submitted a game called Good Morning Magic Land, which itself was inspired by Hello from the Magic Tavern, which are, are you familiar with? So um, mm-hmm. a comedy podcast, the idea is, um, the frame story is that a Earth podcaster from Chicago has fallen through a magical portal, ended up in the magical land of Foon, I think, and uh, is just recording podcasts with the magical creatures and beings that he encounters there. And, um, and it's just this wonderful exercise in world building where each guest is, is effectively building out a new part of the world. And so I was like, oh, cool. How do you, how can we empower players to do that same kind of improv storytelling? So Good Morning Magic Land is a 200 word bit of prompt where you're playing like a local access TV channel and just like going from segment to segment to segment. Um, and each segment is building out the world in some funny way. So whether it's a like weather forecast from a barbarian who's talking about some weird weather up in the north or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. I, I love that. And legitimately I now want to do that for this podcast (laughs) like I want to do some like RPG persona interview oh that could be so much fun um I I lost the thread though so So I realized we're talking about the spark and so that that led me to behind the magic so let me let me re-tangent back in so (laughs) it's like a shower thought of how could I make because I really enjoyed running and playing uh, Good Morning Magic Land but the thought was how could Mm -hmm. I make that into something that had a tighter overall narrative arc and or maybe even a campaign and uh, mm-hmm. that's where, I don't know if I had rewatched it recently, but like I've, I think I was thinking about this is Spinal Tap and like the mockumentary mm-hmm. format is just being so perfect for, for having this kind of comedy and, um, and deconstructing a lot of the fantasy tropes. Yeah. Oh, and it's good. It's good. I mean, my, my mockumentary uh, experience is like The Office, uh, obviously for a lot of people, but I also uh, love this one called Documentary Now, uh, that's also a really good mockumentary series specifically. If anyone has watched it, I fucking love Pollo y Eros, like chicken and rice. That episode is my, cause it mocks chef's tables and I come from like a cooking background. It's so goddamn funny. Um, so yeah, behind the magic, uh, walk us, walk us through how, how we play it. Walk us through. Yeah. So behind the magic, uh, starts by actually one second, let me pull up the, the game guide because I haven't run it in a little bit and I bet I might as well just like That's have okay. that table of contents there. Absolutely. So one of the things I did in the design of Behind the Magic, and this is one of the things that I love happens in the LARP world that I'd love to see more in the tabletop world, is having game scripts. So 
Uh, behind the magic, the like the first page of it is a little bit of uh, the first two pages are some meta information for the facilitator. So like, what kind of space do you need? How much time do you need? How many players? And everything else in there mm-hmm. is read aloud during playtime. So you don't even need to uh, read the whole thing in advance if you don't want to. All the information is conveyed. You don't need to worry that as a facilitator you're leaving anything out. Um, it's just it's just all there. And so uh, in this case, the, like, the different beats of it, so I do something that a lot of LARPs do that some RPGs do, which is having some initial workshopping, um, that being like the general term for how do we prepare to play this game. And that's everything from getting on the mm-hmm. same page about the topic, talking about safety, um, making sure people understand the rules to the extent that they need to. Um, and one of the principles I have in, across a lot of my experience design is getting to interactivity as soon as, fa- as possible. So I'm, I'm sure... This is different than the initial pass uh, from when I was uh, prototyping behind the magic, but it was a lot of like, cool, how do we get people interacting so it's not just rules, 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 and then, you know, a half hour later, we're, we're just starting to play. So, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. here I cover like, you know, genre and tone and safety just to get people on the same page. Uh, and then it's about choosing the overarching quest. So the frame story for Behind the Magic, you are a group of very incompetent heroes who are on an <laughs> epic quest to save the world and uh, up in the air whether you're going to succeed or not. Um, so, so the, the first part of that is figuring out, okay, what's the quest going to be? And I have uh, a few sample quests, uh, topics. So for example, there's a, an evil necromancer raising an army of the dead. They must be stopped. Or, uh, a charismatic bandit is redistributing wealth from the rich to the poor. You must capture them. So there, and one this also echoes a thing I do a lot where I have five sample quests you can start with and they're all just one sentence or you can do your own. And I think so much of my game is like, here's some options, but you're always empowered to do your own. And this, mm-hmm, this really hits mm-hmm. to, like, how do I make games beginner-friendly and accessible? And a lot of that is just having powerful defaults that if you have a good idea, you can always diverge from. But, like, if you're not feeling as creative or you just don't know, you're not ready to take that risk, um, you can always do something obvious, and that's going to work. So you, mm. go ahead. No. <laughs> no, uh, I love it. It's, it's what I like. I had um, Dan Phipps and Kali Laurie on the show earlier, uh, per the recording of this episode, but not out yet, maybe, I don't know. Time is an illusion. But we were talking about Kali doesn't come from a tabletop background. And so she was saying that a lot of games sort of have this, or at least a lot of the games she was initially exposed to sort of have this subtextual understanding that you've been playing games for the last 10 years. And so you have certain assumptions about how to do things. And Dan and Kali for Gem Room Games uh, talk about how they want to design their games to say, if this is your first game, we're going to hold your hand through it. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I think that's something to really consider in the modern design landscape because we're seeing a big swell of people being interested in the tabletop role-playing game hobby in general, uh, even if that is D&D, but D&D in itself is not an easily approached game and makes a ton of assumptions about what you know as a role player, uh, not just on the improv front, but also in the mechanical sense and being able, uh, assuming your cognitive load and everything like that. So what I really love about this game and what you were just speaking to are all these very easy, like, you can make up your own stuff, but this game will walk you from start to finish and you will have a uh, relatively successful uh, finish to your to your whole experience. So, yeah, didn't mean to cut you off there, but I, I was just adding that I love yeah, it. It's, it's one of my favorite things to see in games, and I, I think the whole uh, industry um, will be so much stronger if 
if there's that much more scaffolding and intentionality into making things beginner-friendly yes. and divorced from the broader context. And that being said, I think it's, it's totally okay for a game to be like, so I, I'm not someone who's played a lot um, in the OSR side, but I, sen- I get the sense that there are mm-hmm. a lot of OSR games that the, the physical game itself or the PDF uh, is almost indecipherable if you haven't been immersed in that play culture. And that's okay, but mm-hmm. like to some degree I would I would like for those to like sort of call that out. Like this is you're not gonna know what to do with this unless you you know. And that way people when they're they're browsing for things and they see like a game that like has uh you know super awesome uh, mm-hmm. cover and has a cool pitch that they know that like if they've never played a game before, maybe that isn't the one to start with. Sure, so, sure. Interesting. I think that's interesting too. Yeah, exactly. Setting the expectation of like, hey, this is like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm in the in the wheelhouse of adding ratings to games as far as like expert versus beginner game, right? But I do think there's something to be said about, um, you know, I'm sure people are scared to do that because like, ooh, those are dollars I'm turning away. But it's like, at the same time, that's also potentially a bad review you're adding to your repertoire, right? So why not set those expectations and then adjust totally. from there? And I think one of the biggest projects that like we as a, a scene, as an industry can be working on is like, how do we how do we grow the number of people who are playing storytelling games by 10x, mm-hmm. 100x, 1,000x? And like yeah. expectation setting, proper onboarding, all that goes, goes so long to prevent people from bouncing out and to make it feel like a very approachable hobby. I love all these sort of like business terms as well, because when you called the workshopping, like the session zero workshopping, I find that to be a much more like indicative, like, again, it's one of those language friendly things where it's like, hey, you're new to a game. You may not understand what the term session zero means, but what we're doing is we're going to workshop the setting together and then we're going to start playing like that, that sort of. And I love this concept of like onboarding, using the term scaffolding, like all these things are really powerful. And I think is some adjustable language we could start using in our uh, maybe not necessarily game design, but more in the language in which we present our voice in constructing the text for our game, the copy totally. for our game. Uh, a good example of that, and I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right, and I'm sorry if not. So Jason Morningstar has a lot of games that he's designed that feel like they're LARP, or like American Freeform LARP, that he stopped calling LARP. He just calls it, you're, this is a storytelling game. You're going to tell a cool story by doing a thing. And I think that's really helpful because people have so many, so many preconceived notions about what an RPG is or what a LARP is. And yeah. uh, especially for his games, which don't cleanly fit into boxes often, just saying, hey, this is a, this is a game. And uh, we're going to discover what that means. And we're going to be clear of what we're going to ask of you. But uh, it helps, helps leave some of that baggage at the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially for those who are sort of like on the orbiting of the sphere of tabletop games, right? Like, you know, the first time I ever heard someone talk about a LARP game, I immediately thought of, you know, Renaissance reenactment and medieval like spell scene, the lightning bolt meme and everything like that. And um, it's so it's so much more than that, as it's been described to me on the show. Uh, But, you know, the first time I heard the term, that's what it was, because that's the cultural load I was exposed to, right? So when you try to tell someone new that, hey, we're going to play a LARP, you're like, oh, do I have to get like a sword <laughs> or like a helmet or something like that? Like, no, you don't. But they're coming, they're already sort of on the back foot if that is their reaction to the word or the acronym right. of LARP. And you, there's right? so much heavier lift at that point for whether it's the marketing material or the friend who's trying to convince their friend to join yes. to be like, no, no, it's not this thing. It's this thing over here. It's different in all these ways. Yeah, it's so much easier to just say, hey, we're going to play a game. And it involves these things. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, it's great. Um, 
So for this, did you use, I know you said you had some media inspirations for Behind the Magic, but it seems that you've also applied like the, you know, the general narrative structure of the three act story, right? So was that something that came at first design of the game or was that something you sort of added later on in the process? Uh, Walk me through why you did that. Yeah, I, I don't think it was in the very first iteration. And by the way, I think the first play test I did of this, which was probably like a week after coming up with the idea, was actually tabletop, not LARP. And I think it was either one of the players mm-hmm. or maybe it was in conversation with Jay Lee where she was like, Randy, this, this thing should just be a LARP. It wants to be a LARP. And sure enough, I tested it as a LARP and it, it sang that much more beautifully. Um, so I, oh. I don't, I'm not sure if the, the three-act structure um, and the three acts here being like the adventure starts in a specific location, it continues through another location and finishes at a third. Uh, I think the inspiration uh-huh. there was a, a fewfold. One, um, in a lot of, I think a lot of movies, whether they're explicitly following a three act structure or not, have these changes of setting, which also hit slight different changes of tone or show that the story is progressing. Um, so I think it's powerful for that reason. I think it's powerful from an improv perspective in that if you're shifting to a new location, there's new bits to pull on. So for example, if you know, you've suddenly moved from the haunted forest to the floating ruins, you're going to get so many more inspiration for things to draw into, uh, into your scenes. Um, so I think that was part of it. And also I think the, the calling out that like there are clear acts will hopefully reinforce these themes of like, no, we're driving toward an end of the story. And, um, that made it really easy again, from a scaffolding perspective, there's a, a sheet in behind the magic that, has um, suggested scenes, and there's some like evergreen scenes that can work anytime, but there's also scenes specifically for each act to draw on. So, okay, act three, you know, that might be the party's darkest hour, which probably doesn't make sense in act one. Um, or, you know, in, in act one, it's about getting to know each other or traveling through friendly land. So it, it, all of that helped, helped me better build scaffolding to help players make good, obvious choices in, in their creative play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and... It's true. Another thing that it helped when we talk about the scaffolding, like people also, like one of the examples they bring up often on the show is that the D&D 5e DMG does not teach you how to GM. It teaches you how to make a setting is what it mostly does, right? Um, But it doesn't teach you about like, I think it would be really beneficial for people who are newer to GMing or GMing a game to learn about these narrative structures or these narrative structure options, these toolkits, right? That would facilitate you being like, okay, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I know that at some point we're going to have to have like a pacing change soon. Right. Or some, you know, I, the stakes have to adjust. Uh, I have to reintroduce this character or something like just something that could sort of help them along. And what I love about really the whole prompting of where, of how each of those acts feel is really awesome and the additional thing that i wanted to point out too is that when you say act like setting change is also a change of act i've never really considered that notion before but i i think when i i'm starting to think about like animes and films in my head where like that sort of happens and it's interesting that it really changes the story. Like the setting really does change the story, right? Maybe not in my like first years of GMing for D and D five E, maybe that's not something I considered, but there's definitely a leverage or like, you know, you're in the sleepy rural town with a mystery, right? That's going to add a different context than if you had that same, maybe mystery in a ancient ruin with nobody there. So, uh, and that's going to, 
present a lot, like you said, a lot more inspiration to both the players and the GM in that situation to, to actively separate those things as different story beats, I think is an, is a very interesting concept that I myself am probably going to think about adapting to my own yes, style. Please steal remix. Um, there's <laughs> yeah, there's, there's another thing I, I remember that I do here, um, which is before each act, before each new setting, um, I ask players to go around and add a sensory description of this new place. So, okay, we're entering the haunted ruins. Mm-hmm. Um, are you hearing? Yeah, everyone has to add a sight, a sound, a smell. And uh, in addition to helping um, get people more uh, present in in the moment and in the the scene and the setting, uh, it I think also creates all these bits of uh, story details that might be integrated into later scenes. So, if so much of improv and storytelling is the art of reintegration of ideas, the the more ideas floating mm-hmm. around there, as long as it's not overwhelming, uh, become just more things to easily riff off of and find um, beautiful rhymes with as you're as you're telling your story. Especially when it doesn't come from a single person. I just recently had Tracy Barnett. I just uh, spoke with them. Tuesday of the recording of this episode and we talked about how oh shoot just lost my train of thought what I just said Tracy Barnett <laughs> and sensory details or maybe participatory world building sensory details yeah so it was about player buy-in and it's this con like initially when you're first sort of learning to a GM game let's you know D&D 5e will always be the subject of, of this exam of these examples because it's you know the world's current most popular role-playing game and uh D&D is something else other than RPG, but it is the concept of like switching it on its head where the GM is the person who has to give all the detail. They are responsible for the world Bible, right? But I think you create a stronger buy-in for people who get excited about playing stories when you say everyone here has to add a detail to this, whether it's the location, whether it's the NPC that just showed up, right? It's like if you present those, like you say, reintegration of ideas, everyone gets to say like, ooh, I helped make this and now I own a piece of it, right? Like I have to take ownership and responsibility for this narrative element, right? And I think that's very powerful. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it also, it provides just another bit of interactivity. So for if whatever reason, and I've done this different ways in different games, but like if whatever reason you're looking to break up a chunk where it's a bunch of, of rules or exposition or... Um, perhaps if it's a bunch of scenes and somebody might not be present for a couple scenes, it's just a way to get even a light bit of interactivity. So nobody's sitting for too long without doing, doing something and contributing to the story. Yeah, I had, um, uh, oh shoot, Andy Burdan. Yes, Andy Burdan. And we talked a little bit in uh, his episode about post-elimination mechanics. So the difference of like, uh, the example of poor post-elimination mechanics is something like Werewolf or Town of Salem, where you're just sort of like, you're still in the game, but you're forced to watch until yeah. the end. And that's not necessarily fun. Uh, but instead, games like um, Blood, mostly point of social deduction games or elimination style games, but like Blood Under the Clock Tower has a mechanic where if you die... Uh, if you are eliminated from the play group, you still get one vote left as a ghost and you still get to contribute to clues about your role or other things you've heard that other people are saying that may be untrue, even though you've been removed from the game. So like I, it, when you have these, when you think about where are the moments in my game that I've built in that there is a lull? And can I keep someone even lightly engaged the whole time, right? By giving them something to add to the scene. You know, I think about there's a, a homebrew role, a homebrew rule I once read for D&D 5e that someone made up where they call it spiritual rallying, where like if the party splits up, you can have like a very small quip of like two sentence scene where 
they're like, man, I'm I was really impressed by Gorgog's strength earlier in the chamber, and then you can use that to give them inspiration, right? Oh, like, give them it. that advantage on their next die roll. So it's like you can still be interacting four rooms away breaking meta whatever i don't know i don't care about meta but uh you know it's it's that concept of keeping people engaged when you split them up and i think uh the most attractive moments that i can think of in my playing career is when you know two people are having an endearing scene but not everyone likes to just watch you know what i mean like not everyone likes to watch the tv show unfold so uh figuring out how to add ways to keep them engaged is very cool, and I love that you did that. Yeah, I think that that's awesome. And, and some other examples of games that do that well, I feel like, I mean, Blades in the Dark having flashbacks is a core, like, written to the rules thing, I think is a brilliant approach. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. I think um, games that allow players to come in as NPCs is really helpful. So in, in, in Behind the Magic, um, yes. you can very much be pulling people in who aren't, who their main characters aren't in the scene as NPCs, and that's really fun. Um, and then to some degree, like, the extent that you're encouraging play to lose, then everything that you've just talked about is that much more important. Like, in, I've had behind-the-magic games where people will kill their character off in Act 1 and then haunt the party as a ghost or come in as a series of different entities. <laughs> oh, my favorite was someone who... I, I wish I could credit who it was. I forgot who did it, but they were playing just, like, a random peasant villager, and the running joke became that they kept being killed. And they kept being... kept well, they, they kept being ki- killed and replaced by one of their... Um, brothers or sisters who had a like very similar sounding name, and so like by the end of the like pretty much every scene they were in, they were there. Someone from their family would die at least once. This became just like this reoccurring motif, um, which just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so hilarious. It was me all along. I would love for that. I think, I think they may have joined the villain uh, in the end. Um, <laughs> oh, 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 sorry. One last uh, example here of games that do that yes, well. Yeah. Uh, so Archipelago. Uh, which is a uh, GMless game, mm. um, does a really great job of this because at any point when so- somebody can uh, say, uh, that's not so easy, and then you pull a card from the not so easy deck, uh, which complicates things and says, oh, that thing you're trying to do, yes and, or no but, or some combination of that. And the, mm. uh, th- again, like everyone's engaged because even if you're not directly in the scene, you could always be looking for a place to be like, ooh, maybe, th- maybe we can complicate this in an interesting way. Maybe we can send something off on a tangent. Um, so giving people that like, mm-hmm. narrative agency mm-hmm. is just also like, awesome because now there's, you're always paying attention because there's always a time to, to meddle with the narrative. Yeah, I love those sort of like metal mechanics. Ooh, that would be, hmm. I just, it makes me, whenever I have these talks, especially talks sort of focused on the player experience, not just the game in itself, but talk about player uh, experience as the umbrella of the subject. I always think about how, you know, if there was ever going to be a D&D 6E that wasn't made by the same people who've been making game, the game for the last 10 years, uh, what would it look like if that player experience was thought of and then adding these sorts of components to the game? I don't know. It just, I think about all these things we're talking, I was like, there could be so much more fun to be had that isn't like the two-hour slog of wargaming that's forced into the game. Where people, there are so many people who say they love D&D for the role-playing, and that's very valid, but that's not what the game does. You're doing all the heavy lifting for that. The game does not help you tell those stories. It just helps you whittle down HP <laughs> and talk about life Right, and if you're a novice GM uh, or at a table of all beginners, you're, yes. you're then really unsupported, and hopefully you're able to pull out a great improvised experience. But yeah, I, I think in an ideal world, people are super supported to tell the types of stories they want to be telling, and there's like real yeah. harmony between the, the rules and mechanics and, and the experience that's uh, desired. You're good. You're good. 
He's strong. So yeah, so Behind the Magic ended up in this, this place where you could tell a pretty compact fantasy mockumentary comedy in about 90 minutes of playtime plus maybe a half hour of, of workshopping. Really happy with mm-hmm. where it ended up. Um, and definitely best played embodied where you can really ham up and, and chew up the scenery and knock over yeah. chairs or whatever it might be. But <laughs> but it can be played online. I, and um, I've been lucky enough to see a few streamers play it. And uh, it's the kind of thing that does translate to, to Zoom because you can always sort of just fall back to, to hamming it up and emoting and just saying what your character does. And, and that totally works too. Um, so at some point I might... I was tempted early in the pandemic to uh, remix this into something that was specifically meant for video chat. And my, my working title for that was Scry yeah. Scry Again, where you're all using like crystal balls to look at the heroes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I got torn and a way to do story synth, synth work instead because I got really excited by that. But I might return to Scry Scry Again at some point. Oh, that'd be so good. And also great names, by the way. Behind the Magic and Scry Scry Again. Very thank you, thank good. You. Very good. <laughs> I don't know if you have like a team workshop or anything like that, but very good. (laughs) Very good. Well, uh, let's, let's break up the mechanical talk a little bit. Let's, Usually this is the trend spot, but we had an interesting subject we kind of want to get into and I want to learn about as your application of it. What What is, Randy, what is stage gate design? Oh, love stage gate design. So stage gate design, and I, I, to give credit, I originally encountered it through Daniel Cook's uh, blog, Lost Garden. Daniel Cook's mm-hmm. a, a video game designer who also, I believe, runs the Horseshoe Workshops. So Horseshoe... Um, workshops, a bunch of game designers get together and write these super long essays on topics like what are cozy games and game mechanics that promote coziness in games. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, check out Horseshoe. Um, but Daniel Cook's blog has a lot of interesting thoughts on game design process, and that's where I discovered StageGate. So StageGate uh, is a process for uh, coming up with and refining game ideas and taking them to market. Uh, I think it originally originated in industry and like a portfolio of product management. Uh, but the, the simple bit of it is that you're starting with very, very simple, a lot of very, very simple ideas and pitches, and over successive rounds, refining those ideas, building them up, and, um, and most importantly, filtering out the ones that aren't quite fitting what you want. And the idea is that by going really broad and starting with lots of ideas, you're more likely to hit something that's amazing. Uh, you're more likely for different ideas you have to be good for cross-pollination and uh, remixing. And... Uh, and most, maybe most importantly, is that you're not investing a ton of work down a path that might ultimately be a dead end. So mm-hmm. the, I use StageGate the most in the serious games part of my design life, but I, uh, I'll also use it for, for some consumer games if I don't know exactly the direction to go in. And mm-hmm. my personal take on it, um, so, so every stage has a different sort of form factor as I do it and a different gate to that, you know, different type of hurdle to pass to make it onto the next stage. So, mm-hmm. so for me, uh, it starts with a lot of like, let's just get fragments of ideas. So not even a cohesive game pitch, but 
what might be a cool mechanic, what might be a really interesting narrative beat or moment, what might be a, a feeling or sensation that I want players to have during the game or maybe walk away from. Um, also during this time, I'll try and write out some goals to, to help reel the game in in scope. So for example, I might say this definitely needs to be an RPG or needs to be a LARP or uh, on the serious game side, maybe this is this needs to work for 15 to 30 players uh, or it needs to last you know at most two hours, those types of things. Uh, and one of the reasons I love this, and especially the first couple stages of the stage gate, is I can take I can run through it with uh, a client who maybe is not a game designer, maybe hasn't played that many games, and it's a great way to do still some collaborative design because they are so free to just throw out lots of ideas too, riff off of my ideas, and um, and also I can tease out their preferences as we talk through what things in, at different parts of the the funnel are are interesting to them and and why. And so if the first stage is just throwing out these little fragments, the, the next stage of the stage gate is condensing these fragments into sentence pitches. So a sentence pitch probably has, uh, you know, this is, is going to be a LARP, and the players are going to take fall into factions and hear roughly what the factions are, and we're maybe going to have a little bit of game state uh, or something like that. And the idea is that, you know, I might go from, you know, 20 to 50 uh, idle, like, little fragments of a game idea to maybe... 10 to 20 sentence level pitches and now we can suddenly start trading off well i really like what this this part of this one this part of this other one maybe we can remix it into into another pitch um and that that starts you know that's where it starts to gel in in our minds of like oh maybe there's something really interesting down this path or that path uh and so so once we get a bunch of really good sentence pitches down the next stage in the stage gate is uh, paragraph pitches or like a sentence and then an outline and that's for me like we're where it starts hitting the interesting points of like, okay, what are the tensions and the trade-offs? So something that might be a really good one-sentence pitch, when you start to say, okay, well, what would the game structure be? Or, or what are players actually doing? That then, then suddenly, either, either go, you come up with a bunch of really cool ideas, or you might say, huh, well, I'm kind of stumped here, because it was a fun-sentence pitch, but maybe it doesn't really work in practice. But mm -hmm. because we're now designing it in just a, a you know, half-page tops length, um, it's not that we're investing in, in running in something that we're going to take all the way to playtest, especially something that might, you know, if we're running a playtest and we need 10 people, that's like a lot of work on our part. So the more we can be t testing at the early stage, the better. So these, you know, paragraph or half page length, uh, just sort of sketches of what the game might look like are so good at saying, okay, you know, now I'm getting a clear picture, distinct picture of what this game might look like in play in reality. And mm. ideally we're coming up with then like three to five of those and uh, having a really good conversation around the trade-offs. And again, hopefully, like, ideas we have for one might be repurposable for another. Uh, mm -hmm. And from there, the next stage is coming up with, like, a game script. And this could be a, like, one-page bulleted outline. It could be something a little bit bigger. Sometimes I'll, I'll switch from doing all of this in parallel to just doing one at a time at this point. It depends on how much conviction I have and the client has around, like, oh, this is the path forward. Uh, but depending on the game, and this is especially true on the consumer side, this is where I'll bring in playstorming. I'll say, okay, cool. We now have like a one-page outline of what might this game be. Let's try it out. And so, so playstorming for a, a, a consumer game might be like, let's just dump a bunch of material on the table and play it out. Um, mm -hmm. If it's a, a serious game or simulation, um, sometimes it'll be, okay, we're going to talk through what we think the different players or the different factions might do at every point. And some of the key questions there are, uh, does everyone... Do people always have interesting decisions to be making? Is there interesting tension? Do they have the right context and information? And sometimes, you know, in this design process, we'll realize, like, oh, well, this, this one player or this one faction, I'm not really sure what their goal is at this point. And at that point, we need to back up and say, well, are they, is this the right framing? Or um, how can we provide better scaffolding? All, all those sorts of questions. So, uh, you know, if, if this stage is like the, the outline stage and we're either talking through play 
uh, in like a granular level or we're playtesting, then once we have some confidence, ideally by the end of that one, we, we know, okay, here's the, the rough direction of one specific pitch that we're going in, let's go and start refining. And then the, the stages from there are probably not, not too surprising to anyone who's designed, but then you're, you're coming up with an earlier draft, you know, you know light drafts to, to more polished drafts. Depending on the arc of the game, it might be good enough to have just a rough facilitator run of show guide or script um, mm-hmm. because it's never going to be published. Uh, or it might be that, you know, first, if it's something that will end up being published, usually my like sequencing for what I want to de-risk is, okay, First, I just need something that I personally can run. It could be indecipherable to somebody else. Then I need something that uh, someone else can run maybe with me present um, to, to fill in the blanks. And then finally, something that ideally I could just fly on the wall or they can record and, and share with me later. And I don't know if that works. And to sort of look back, that's like, first it's testing, like, is there something fun here? And the second is like, do the do the rules work at, You know, once I've honed in on the fun? And then not just do the mechanics work, but are they explained in a way that's accessible is the third. And uh, again, sort of with the principle of like work on where the biggest risk is first and uh, do as much as you can with doing as little work as possible to learn and optimize mm-hmm. on learning. Like that, that's where like the, the repeated layers of playtesting or playstorming uh, I think are so, uh, so effective because you get to explore a lot more space and you get to, to save a bunch of time that might have been wasted down a dead end path. Mm. Uh I build up a whole note card. Here we go. Uh, no, this is very cool. So I'm a very structured style thinker. Like I love the guideline of a process. I love being able to repeat a process to do something. Um, I don't have, while I have good mm, idea pulling from the atmosphere that is my brain, uh, I cannot connect those dots without some sort of structure. So I love this. I love this concept for maybe the people at home. Could we like, I don't know, find a random word and maybe do a small run through of this real quick. Is that possible? Do you feel like that's doable? Yeah. Sounds good. At least for the, the early stages, we can definitely yes, do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah well, no, let's go full play storming and just <laughs> find people on okay. the street. So we do it with a word or better yet we can do it. Is there a, um, a piece of media you've consumed recently, whether a movie or a book or something that you really loved and you think like, Oh, there should be a game around this. Uh, oh, uh, mm, the Demon Slayer anime, I think, is really cool. They have, like, this uh, power, like, breathing techniques and stuff like that. It's very, like, feudal Japan, samurai, uh, with magic fantasy and demons layered over it. Cool. So if we were to make a game around this, immediately we have a bunch of, of uh, genre trappings and setting. Um, I think the other pieces that might be interesting are, like, what is this? is this something that you want as a campaign or a quick one-shot? And, and maybe the answer is we can explore both, or maybe we lock that in and that's one variable we're not experimenting with. Definitely is something campaign. I see some like progression or power growth things that happen in this. Cool. So if power growth's important, um, like these are all things that you could sort of like write at the top of the page. Like here are the things that I know I want in this. So, you know, I can explore beyond the bounds a little bit, but I'll, I'll cut things out at different stages if they're not meeting and aligned with those goals. So, right. so then, I, then the next step would be, okay, cool. Let's brainstorm a bunch of mechanics that we might want in here. And some of it might okay. also be like, what are the types of scenes and beats? Like, is this, is this a game where there's a lot of, um, uh, violence and physical conflict, or is it really about emotional stories and growth? And let's make sure we're, we're building mechanics that support those. Um, yeah. Uh, it is both for sure. There are definitely daring battles, but, uh, the main protagonist of the show kind of sees the, um, depth of the people who've been turned into demons and he sees them for the people they were before they enact in all this, you know, uh, uh, predatory practice. Ooh, very cool. So yeah. 
So some of the, the things uh, that I'd start jotting down is like, okay, cool. So there's this element of like who they were and who they are now. And like, yeah. you know, so one fragment might be like, is this a game where there's lots of flashbacks where you're meeting characters and then flashing back to see who they were before they became this demon yeah. form. Yeah. Um, uh, another, uh, on the mechanic side, I think there's interesting bits. Like I, I am a big fan of like every, everything is a remix. Everything, everything humans do is a remix. And mm-hmm. so uh, to the extent that there's like, things you can pull on in the game design world that makes sense to remix in, uh, at least as, like, jumping off points. So, like, yeah. you know, th- I think that's where, like, uh, for this one in particular, I have no idea what would be the right fit, but writing down, like, oh, you know, may- maybe is there an interesting, um, you know, what-, what would this look like if it was a belonging outside belonging game with tokens? Or, sure, and, sure. Uh, maybe there's a path where it's, like, what would uh, this game look like if... So I'm not sure how the show's framed, but, like, so there's one central character who's the... Yeah, and then there are, like, some nice supporting characters that have their small, like, offshoot stories and things like that as well. Cool. So I could see a yeah. game, like, what if this was GMless and it was all the supporting characters mm-hmm. and the and, no, and and you're kind of taking time turns with all the supporting characters, but the that one central character is shared by everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is very much, like, the fragment style of things. We're putting some, like, keywords down yeah. and saying, like, this is all the stuff we want here. And then we have, like, some goals, like, we want campaign play, at least initially, right? We we want some campaign play. I feel like this is a tabletop role-playing game because there's, like, power progression stuff. I don't know if in the LARP world that also exists. There's, like, a progression style of LARP game. But um, the, the quick so answer to that is there is, but I'm not at all familiar with it. It's um, there's a cam- campaign LARP is a is a whole school LARP is such a big diverse thing, and uh, I'm not familiar with it, but it is very much a thing. Heard good to, good to know. Um, so then we would also use these goals to sort of decide like what may or may not work. So we would move into like the condensed version, right? We would let's let's ask. Um, Let's ask the GM list, right? Like, let's say the GM list, GM list isn't going to make it to the next stage and we start doing these condensed pitch. So we're left with sort of these mechanics of, like, figuring a flashback of, like, who they are or wh- who they were, who they are now. Uh, maybe let's say we stuck with the token-based uh, belonging outside belonging system, right? Because they use breath, so we can instigate that with uh, conceptually a stamina or something like that, right? Um what would the what would this stage look like here? We would just say like this is a game that uses tokens to represent breath styles. I know you may not necessarily know what that means. For anyone <laughs> that's listening and doesn't know what Demon Slayer is, great anime. I highly recommend it. It's got a great story and it does some interesting things with the shonen genre. Uh, but yeah. yeah, what would we do here in the condensing stage? Yeah, so it sounds like okay. Part part of the story is okay. You've got that mechanic bit down. And so that's like half of maybe a sentence prompt. And the other prompt is like, cool. And maybe the, if there's a campaign, the core loop of a session is all built around, again, I don't know the anime, but maybe it's about one major encounter between one of these side characters and one of the main characters. Or, sure. you know, and so it's like a little bit of like, what's, what's the shape of one unit of experience? Like the smallest unit of experience that's satisfying on its own. Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, maybe there's some different theories. Like maybe, maybe at this stage, you have a few different uh, sentence prompts and one is focused on like really zoomed in where one session is equivalent to one episode if the episodes have similar mm-hmm. structure. And maybe another one is like, no, one, one session might be an entire season, and this is really going to cover a ton of ground and have a, a much more epic scope. So you, you, you might then come up with like a few different ones that are both different permutations on like what does the structure look like and what, you know, is it about tokens that are really zoomed in on the, the stamina or is it, is it some other uh, set of uh, game state that really matters? Yeah, like the uh, figuring out who they are, like using the tokens also not only as a 
uh, space of physical feet, but also as a space for like figuring out or tapping in uh, to the empathy of your opponent or another character, right? I think that could also be an interesting uh, component there, mechanically, but also setting-wise. Totally. And, and again, this is me not totally knowing the, or not, not at yes, all knowing the anime yes. itself, but maybe there's something... Grain of salt, like, everyone. Grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I, I, could see, I could see forks where it's like, okay, these, these NPC characters, or these more minor side characters, are they... Are we quickly churning through them where we're, there's a lot of like play to lose, like where they're going to, they might die, but that's okay because it's going to tell a good story. Or are these characters we definitely want sticking around? And like, so that's maybe another design fork. And then another sure. design fork might be like, okay, are we mostly keeping our, everybody keeping the same side character? Or is it that we're, we're all pulling them out of a pool in the beginning and rotating around? And I think like these are all, all fun design fork questions. One of the things I love doing um, and it's, I think it works very well within the stage gate approach is just noting here are all the design forks where I had at least two interesting ideas, but I decided to go down one. Let me flag the other because, you know, if I hit a dead end later, I can just come back and be like, oh, well, I'll just try it this other way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then from this stage, we'd move into sort of the paragraph pitch. This is something where like, I don't know, maybe it's on the back of the book or, you know, the idea is that it's on the back of the book and sort of gives an idea of what the game is. Right. So this is a game where you play uh, demon hunters who are trying to discover uh, rid the world of demons, but do it in an empathetic manner because that's what our uh, troop does, right? Like that sort of, would that sort of elicit this sort of third step? Yes. And I think de- depending on the depth you want to go into, I so uh, there's no canonical stage gate stages. So I think sure. that could be its own step. And depending on your goals, like if you were trying to get potential players or feedback from potential players or collaborators or maybe fans of the anime or maybe people who've never heard of the anime but seeing if it still resonates. That's a perfect shareable thing that you can just be like, hey, does this pitch interest you or do you prefer this other pitch over here? Like, mm. I'd love feedback. Um, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so you could you definitely do that as a stage um, or you can sort of skip slightly further ahead and have have that same detail but then also have the a few bullet points like so the bullet point like a, in a given session the following things happen in sequence first you do activity phase one then activity phase two then activity phase three or whatever interesting. It might be. interesting and then you would write out the game script from this point forward sort of like more an elongate like you have a set of rules or mechanics that people can play with and instill with and this is the if you run it like if it's indecipherable to everyone else, but maybe you and you run it and it sort of executes and you're basically at this point now playstorming and reworking it until it gets to a state where it can be run without you and that's like something to really start iterating upon right is that sort of the framework exactly and i i would say that the that first thing you don't depending on what you're trying to do and if you have collaborative partners or not you don't even need to have a game script you can kind of just gather some friends and be like I'm going to dump a bunch of tokens on the table and we're just going to I have this thing that's half baked in my head. We're going to see where the fun is. Uh, and oh, one of the favorite my favorite things I do um, and one of the reasons I love playtesting so much and playstorming so much is get a game in front of a strong table of players and see what they do, especially if it's underbaked and figure out mm-hmm. what are the the natural impulses that they're doing as storytellers as improvers mm-hmm. and and then thinking okay, how do I empower any table, a table full of beginners who've never played a game before, to, to make some of the same like bold, creative choices and have some of the same amazing narrative beats? Um, and I, I think this is like a, a paving the cow path kind of thing of just like, cool, see, see what they do, make it so that anyone can do it. So I think almost every game I've, I've made has elements of this. So like Behind the Magic, my guess is 
I had plenty of moments where somebody came up with came up with a really great character concept, and then I just mm-hmm. added that to the list of like possible characters to do, or likewise, you know, uh, villains or or scene beats or whatever it might be. Interesting, interesting. That's uh, yeah. What a smart way to do that too, because you're sort of leveraging the combined perspective and experience of someone of people, multiple people who have maybe played. I don't know, I'm making up a number for the sake of this hypothetical, but uh, they've each played 30 different games that don't overlap at all, and you're trying to see where that experience brings into what feels like a strong version of play, right? And then you want to take those examples and place them in your design so that you can help others replicate that strong experience. Totally. And it's not just games they've played, it's you know movies they've watched, books they've read, um, and maybe things they've written too, because... All of this just becomes great, great remix fodder. Um, mm-hmm. I would say uh, uh, another thing I'll do, depending on the game, if it's a, specifically a, a game that's trying to tap into a genre, then I'll uh, read the TV tropes page for that genre and like all of the links that come off that because that usually has so many good examples of like the iconic beats. And I think it's interesting. And um, if you're if you're doing uh, a non-interactive story medium, it's usually good to like shy away from like the biggest cliches. But if you're doing mm-hmm. something interactive, those cliches become a moment of recognition where everyone's like, oh, we did the thing. We did the thing that the genre does. Interesting. Interesting. I've never really thought about it that way, but that's that's a really good point that like, because the first time I was ever uh, exposed to the concept of like putting touchstones in a book was Blade in the, Blades in the Dark. Like, here's yeah. some media points that we can all point to and say, hey, if we watch these things, we will have a really good idea of what this game is supposed to do, right? So to put in something, obviously cliches that are non-harmful to people at the table, right? But to use these sort of cliche or trite tropes that might you might avoid in like novel writing or filmmaking, it helps everyone maintain a same page experience and, no ex- and it may also help other players riff because it's like, oh, I totally see what you're doing right now and I totally know how to help you feel good here, right? Like it's that moment as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, any any closing thoughts for Stagegate now that we sort of like have run through it? I think the main closing thought here is that it's it's flexible and it's there for it's there to be a, of help to you. So to the extent that you want to add stages or reduce stages or skip stages, that's totally fair. It's like it, it mm-hmm. is a, a tool and a process that is, is there for you to adapt. But whenever you're either whenever you're struggling with a blank page and not sure what direction to take things in, um, or you're trying to collaborate with someone and you want a little bit of extra help uh, making sure you're on the same page or making sure both of you have lots of room to have your voices heard, uh, it's, it's a great place to turn to first because it's just, it, it gets you moving, it gets you pushing forward and it gives you the freedom to say, I'm going to throw things out here and then I might completely discard it. So bad ideas are so welcome because some bad ideas turn out to be great ideas. Yeah, there's a, before, before ending this particular segment, there's a, who is it? Bob, Robert? It's called The Yard Sale, and it's by someone who was working on the Bioshock 2 game. Uh, standby. Jeremy, edit, edit this silence out real quick, but I want to make sure I get this name right. The Yard Sale. Hello? Oh, haha, I turned off the Wi-Fi on my iPad, lol. Sorry, thank you for your patience, Randy. I'm really curious now. The Yard Sale, Game Design, Bioshock. Zach McClendon. He did a talk at Practice 2018. 
He did. Uh, so this, what you're talking about is, is sort of similar to how he approaches the yard sale, which is he takes his entire collaborative crew, puts them in a room, gives them a bunch of sticky notes. Uh, I believe this is done also in like um, boardroom or management meetings or leadership meetings where people are trying to figure out what direction to maybe take the next fiscal year or something like that. But it says, you know, this is a section for mechanics. This is a section for setting and just starts doing like the fragment stage, right? Starts everyone keep writing post notes, keep putting things up there. And then once all of it's up there, once everyone's drained of ideas for all this conceptual work, they start organizing them and ordering them into like one, two, three, four, five in a rating system. And there may be 32 ideas for one section, but only five are going to be the most important. And they'll spend maybe like a month or so, two weeks. I don't know. I don't remember what the deadline for Bioshock was, but I think it's like anywhere from two weeks to a month of like just organizing or rating these things to find like basically a distillation of these ideas and saying, this is what the game is because this is what we can realistically do in our time span. And this is also, uh, this will also create the strongest experience and they'll revisit that board and they may reorder things as they iterate on the process. But your, the stage gate reminded me of, of the yard sale by Zach McClendon. So I'll put both uh, a link to the original article for the stage gate by what was, what was his name? Again? Uh, Daniel cook at lost garden. Daniel Cook at Last Lost Garden and the Practice 28, 2018 talk by Zach McClendon. I think both of those will be very valuable to add to the designer toolkit. I know it is for me, so no reason it's not for someone else out there. I'm having a blast. Are you having a blast? I'm having oh, so much fun. Like this is, yes. I, I, I can talk about game design endlessly and you have such thoughtful questions and, uh, and extra context to add. So this is, this is a treat for me. Thank you. Wah, wah. Uh, that will uh, bring us now, Randy into talking about premise, which is sort of a, what I like to dub as a framework game, which I love, love, love framework games. I think they're very, very cool. Uh, but why don't you give, why don't you tell everyone what premise is real quick because you're a designer and you'll do a better job than I will. All right, sure. So, uh, premise is collaborative game, uh, that, uh, you will be together building and riffing on each other's ideas to come up with something probably weirder and more novel than any one of you would have come up with on its own or on your mm -hmm. own. Um, and, uh, and the way it works is everyone has a starts with a template in front of them. And there's three ways of playing premise. You can do uh, setting character or plot. And you'll all start out with the same sheet, and you can, you can chain them together into, into rounds. But you'll all start with a, a setting sheet in front of you, and at the same time, you'll all start filling in a top-level pitch. So is this uh, an abandoned base on Mars? Is this a, uh, uh, a beautiful post-utopia uh, powered by magic? Um, whatever it is. And so everyone's writing simultaneously, so you might have all these different genres and settings all at the same time. Um, and once everyone's done with the high-level pitch, you pass your page to the right, and you now answer the next box on the page. So if you're looking at the page, it's a sequence of these boxes with prompts. And so some of the boxes are like, what are the important factions here? What's a central conflict? What are the sights? What are the sounds? And so the way the game's played, you're just constantly rotating through, reading what was on the page already and adding to it. So maybe you had given me a pitch of the uh, um, 
abandoned base on Mars. And mm-hmm. I'll say the central conflict is, you know, maybe it's uh, haunted by the ghosts of the, the Martian pioneers who, who died here. And, um, and then I'll then pass it to the next person who might elaborate with some, some sights and sounds. And the idea is that you just keep, um, keep going and elaborating and, until you get to the end. And then you share back with everyone what each of the settings turned out to be. And there's this wonderful delight of, oh, I, I started it thinking it might go in this direction, but people just took it in this cool, weird other other place. And um, and there's, there's this super delightful moment of just seeing which which bizarre, cool ways things went. And um, I uh, the main inspiration for this was Exquisite Corpse, which... Mm-hmm. Um, I was so, about to say, yeah. Yeah. So Exquisite Corpse, for listeners who are not familiar, uh, is a game that was originally pioneered by the French Surrealists in like the 20s or 30s. And in, in that game, you, you start with a piece of paper and you, in the top third of the, pain, of the paper, uh, start a drawing and have the lines from that drawing just slightly overlap below the top third line. And then you pass it on to somebody else who uh, continues... Yeah, in that case, you fold over the top third of, third of the paper and then continue the drawing for the middle section, and then somebody else does the bottom section. And, um, and again, the idea was, like, let's provoke ourselves to make things that are, are beyond and weirder than any one person would be coming, coming up with. Um, so, yeah, Exquisite Corpse, huge inspiration here. Yeah. Uh, and you do it, in premise, you do it for both setting character and plot. Do you, f- uh, I would say yes, but do you feel like this is a tool that people can leverage when they're starting a game? Like, if they have a... Um, you know, if this is Blades in the Dark and we knew what the setting was, but we wanted to add some locations or we wanted to add something special for us to explore in the world, do you think people could use this uh, in that same medium? Very much so. And I think it's, it's written into the rules that you're highly encouraged to, to adapt and remix this. So because setting is fractal, you could be, a setting could be a galaxy or it could be a convenience store. Or it could be, you know, just in the inner, inside of somebody's body. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, that... Yes, you can do it to create neighborhoods in Blades in the Dark. You could do it to, oh, let's stick with Blades in the Dark as an example. You could totally create a ton of NPCs um, mm-hmm. by, uh, by just playing character. So the, the three different modes of play, setting, character, and plot, are you can easily sit down and just do one of them or just do one you know, in the middle of the rest of your game without touching anything else. I could see mm-hmm. for, for a, a storytelling game, let's say you're doing a campaign and you've just arrived at a new location because you're traveling. And this is a great way of, even if it's a more traditionally GM'd game, um, of uh, sharing narrative uh, agency and responsibility, saying, cool, well, before our next session, because um, a game, a session of premise, just one, one of character setting or plot takes maybe 30 minutes, maybe a little mm-hmm. less. So you easily could say, cool, before we start the session, we're going to play premise character and uh, create a bunch of NPCs that we're probably going to encounter over the course of the session. I I love it. Uh, I love these games because they help me. Again, I'm one of those people who like structures, who like templates, who like frameworks. Uh, I cannot create in a nebulous space. I know there are people out there who can. I am not that person. Uh, so I love when things like this exist. In fact, I was trying to make something similar to this maybe uh, seven months ago, eight months ago, I wanted to make like a campaign helper templates for new GMs. And this is amazing. And now I just, you know, I'll just recommend this to people. So to get you that money, I, I don't see why I would need to reinvent <laughs> the wheel on this one. Uh, you know, what are some other framework cool. games that you love? Cause you call this a framework game. I'd love to hear your definition and some other games you think exemplify it. Yeah, so um, Tyler Crumrine's Beak, Feather, and Bone is a really great example of a framework game because it allows you to build up a location through uh, history. Um, There is another one called um, Apotheosis by Gordy Morphy 
that one ex- uh, tries to examine the process and evolution of telling an oral story that, that doesn't get written down. So like urban legends and stuff could also be an example of this. Um, there is also um, The King's Domain. No, what is it called? I literally just bought it, but it's by Sealed Library, a.k.a. Matt Sanders. And uh, it is on my itch. Stand by. Maybe I'll just leave Google Chrome up. I just don't want my computer to scream at me. <laughs> you have too many processes. Uh, <laughs> my library. Dead Emperors, uh, which has you make a kingdom. So mm. those are the, those are like what my definition of a framework game is. It's something where you can play, you gamify the traditional GM experience and sort of uh, create guidelines and tools that maybe more traditional games are not providing you. Uh, I know that like, Again, the example, D&D 5e, the DMG, uh, it has, like, villain prompts and setting prompts and gives you, like, some planes that you can explore. But I feel like those things are just a little too loose. They don't have you answer sort of the more um, foundational questions to... uh, There's another game... Tracy Barnett's You Are the Dungeon. A lot of the time when I'm when I first started playing D&D and you know, it's a classic dungeon crawl game, you know, you meet in a tavern, you get hyped up and then you go steal from other uh, civilizations <laughs> and but the thing that that isn't really thought about is what was the dungeon before it was a dungeon? Like nice. yeah. It 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 is it was a castle that is now ruined after 500 years of erosion and tear. And it has been populated for whatever reason by all of these things. And that gives you, uh, thinking about that gives you way more flavor to operate off of when you get the players in there, right? You don't have to now explain why there are a bunch of goblins, a manticore, and a ooze here because the ooze got there because the castle's irrigation system was connected through the farmland and now that's closed off but the ooze can't get out now so now it's just living here uh and all those sorts of concepts right and though those are my examples of framework games that i use Love and it. this and, and certainly fits back, in them hearkening back to our earlier conversation the players have more um, buy into the game because they've helped yeah. create the setting. There's more bits for people to riff off of so even if the the gm hasn't mentioned something being present in a scene players might remember like, oh, isn't there this other thing we can now reincorporate and riff off of? So absolutely mm-hmm. love it. Um, uh, two others I'll throw out. Uh, so I think Microscope is great at building out like yes. a timeline history. Uh, yep. And then Dialect by uh, Kate and Hakan at Thorny Games is through um, exploring the culture and language that emerges. So it's a game where you, mm-hmm. you create a, tell the story of the creation and decline of a language. And it is just, oh, it is such a beautiful game. And it works really well in this framework way. So you can totally play a, a round of this to build out some of the world and then set another story in that world. Ooh, uh, ooh I may have to get this. Darn. Uh, you're hearing it live. I'm spending money <laughs> for the <laughs> first time. Uh, awesome. Very cool. Um, yeah, I I love premise. I think it does really cool things for people who may have a harder time uh, getting into sort of that improv space. And I think what it also, your game specifically, uh, helps people learn to create buy-in like it, it 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 gives them permission to express themselves because i think one of the traditional thinkings or teachings especially when we again 
D&D 5e is like the GM holds all the power and you can't really speak up outside of the agency of your own player. And even like more modern takes on what it means to GM for D&D still doesn't really give you the permission to be like, uh, yeah, you know, this is a, a temple to my God. I would love, you know, if I'm playing a cleric or a paladin or whatever, uh, a druid. I would love to make sure that there's a bunch of, a druid in my druid's grove. I'm exploring an ancient grove that belonged to one of my ancestors. I would love to see some of our flowers here, right? Uh, the GM may not necessarily be thinking of that, but you as the player who cares about that space should be willing or should be able to add that detail to make it more important for you and make it more evocative for everyone else at the table. And it also takes cognitive load off of the GM who's already spent maybe 30 minutes <laughs> trying to concoct this space improbably if they're not a prepper and maybe even like they're tired from prepping all week and stuff like that. So I think it's important to play games, gamify or introduce the permissions to say everyone gets to create something at the table, not just the player you're playing, not just the avatar sleeve you're wearing. Totally. And uh, you know, one other um, thing that is interesting, wasn't part of the initial design inspiration, but it sort of emerged and is, something I think is cool to reincorporate into other designs is mm -hmm. uh, the fact that because you're, you're all sort of simultaneously doing this writing and you're quickly creating a bunch of content, I think in a, in a given session, you're coming up with, I don't know, seven or eight things per, per sheet, per template. Mm -hmm. And because you're coming up with so many and you're constantly having to pass it around and then start on a new one, uh, it kind of, it's kind of freeing and liberating because if I don't have something really creative to do for a given uh, rectangle, I can just put something obvious or a clear just like next step forward extension of, what's previously written. And that's okay because somebody else is going to get to it next and they might have a wild idea of where else to take it. And you know what? I'm about to see an entirely new sheet and that might give me inspiration to do something really out there. And the idea that like you can, you know, you're free to take really cool creative risks. And if it's too, too wild and out there, it kind of doesn't matter because there's a bunch of other content coming around too. And if it's not, if it's the other direction, it's not that interesting. That's okay. Cause somebody else is going to step in and do something interesting. So it's like an incredibly forgiving space for uh, taking creative experimentation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very powerful, very powerful stuff. I highly recommend, like, uh, my other, like, term for them is, like, toolbox games, but this is definitely a, a toolbox game that people should that people should add, for sure. I think it's something that they should use the table in between sessions. Um, uh, it, what's also cool about these framework games is that they're usually almost always designed, because you talked about how each section of yours can be played in 30 minutes, right? A lot of these framework games don't take very long to play at all. Like Apotheosis takes maybe 30, 45 minutes. Beak, Feather, and Bone can take anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, uh, unless you want to play it like campaign style. Um, and so what's nice about them is, you know, if you want to keep keep the juice going, if you want to play all week, and but you don't have a lot of time, you can do this outside of the game and still feel like you're attached to playing and it almost elongates the experience for those who are able to do so. I understand not everyone's able to do that, but it could also be something that you do at the tail end of a session or right before a session. Like, Hey, we're about to uh, go into this place. Let's do a quick little run of you are the dungeon and let's make a dungeon. Right. Uh, and I think that stuff is very powerful and I think it should definitely be leveraged more in sort of the workshopping of, constant workshopping of your campaign, right? I think it keeps the energy high for that experience. Great, I think that's that's good, unless you have a closing thought for premise. Yeah, I'll throw some th some closing thoughts. So yeah. 
so yeah, you, you can get Premise uh, on uh, itch, randylubin.itch.io. Uh, and if you get it, it comes with Google Slides. So there's the printed version, and um, hopefully soon it'll be safe for everyone to play the printed version around a table with friends. Um, and there's something really fun to that, like, hushed, everyone's like, sort of scribbling and then occasionally cracking up when they see what somebody else has written energy to it. But there's also a Google Slide format. And so mm-hmm. you can totally just play it in Google Slides. Uh, everyone just sort of rotating through the slides. That works really well uh, for remote play. Um, the other thing I'll throw out uh, with Premise is I've used it as part of creative writing workshops. So um, I've teamed up with folks to do like uh, speculative futures writing. Uh, and uh, so, for example, I did it with the uh, Foresight Institute where we were talking about extremely hopeful uh, futures. And what we did is we played a round of uh, Premise setting first to, to zoom into like diff- what different aspects of a very positive future that's been transformed by technology might look like. And that was the first half of the workshop. And the second half was then writing bits of short stories set in those worlds. And so really great at just creating fodder for other activities, whether they're other games or fiction writing or something completely different. So good. And, you know, I am a sucker for solar punk. So I am, uh, that sounds cool to me. And I can't wait to see those speculative fictions for sure. Uh, Great. Well, then usually at the end here, uh, Randy, I do a TLDR tip, but I think there's something we want to talk about, right? Yes, yeah. I didn't forget. It's just on the end here. Uh, let's talk about what is Story Synth. So, Story Synth, as I think I said at the top of the show, uh, is hopefully the easiest way to go from idea to playing a real game uh, that you've designed in the browser. And specifically, it's for prompt driven storytelling games. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the types of games that inspired it are for the Queen or the Quiet Ear, where you have a, a deck of prompts that have been shuffled up. And, um, and my goal for the design process here was, uh, so this, this story synth I started working on uh, last summer, and so couldn't do any playtests in person. That was definitely slowing down my, uh, you know, the, the velocity of which I was designing and shipping games. And so my thought was, like, I should be able to just dump a lot of my game ideas and content into a spreadsheet, and then it should automatically generate a deck that then people can play and sync. And so uh, I was I just started I started building it, noodling on it. Um, and again, every step of the way was, like, how do I make this approachable to somebody who doesn't know how to code? Mm-hmm. Um, and I figured almost everyone can, you know, open a Google Sheet and just do some creative writing, drop some ideas down, and... Uh, and then um, if you copy that link into the storysynth.org website, it'll completely generate the game for you. And there's a variety of formats. So the, the first format was the very simple for the queen format. Actually, that's not quite true. So quick tangent. Well, the initial game I designed for it, although the, the idea was very much to take in the for the queen direction, was a game I submitted to Golden Cobra, which is a really great American freeform LARP competition that runs every year. Uh, very worth checking out. Tons of great short free games. Um, really great inspiration of like different game ideas. Go check it out, goldencobra.org. Um, so I designed a game for that called uh, Dawn of the Monster Invasion. And uh, the idea is that you're doing a spoof, so you're seeing the mockumentary spoof theme pop up again. Uh, you're doing a spoof of monster movies uh, through six uh, interviews. And so first you're, you know, you and you rotate around who's the person who's the interviewee, and then um, really they're giving a speech, and, uh, and then you can do some Q&A after the speech. And so whether it's the the person who they think they saw something but they're not really sure and everyone's doubting them at the beginning of the monster movie or it's the like way overconfident mayor who's saying it's totally safe come enjoy your vacation there's definitely no monster it's totally fine you know it's all those very tropey beats um 
And so I knew I wanted this, this is a fun game I wanted to make. Um, one of the key inspirations here is a game by um, Chad Wolf and Jeff Dieterle called uh, No Further Questions, which is um, very adjacent to this. It's like basically a bunch of one-off press conferences about topics that nobody should be having a press conference about. It's, it's delightful. <laughs> it's not yet out publicly, but hopefully they're kickstarting it soon. Um, so follow, follow them to see that. But uh, so right, so, so I, I, was, I was inspired by that. I was inspired by like, how do we make a silly monster movie game? Um, but I also wanted people to be able to really easily play it uh, remote. And so, so the initial story synth um, thing I designed was that submitted to Golden Cobra, was lucky enough to win the Golden Cobra Best New Tool category for both Story Synth and the and the game, and uh, and so that, that was really cool. But like as I was building it, it was very much like cool. Every design step along the way, how do I make it so that other folks can make things as easily? And so that's where shortly after finishing the Golden Cobra game, I I said, okay, cool. Let's let's open source this thing. Let's put it online so anyone can use it. Let's write out a guide so and have some templates so people can just go. Cool. We're going to create create a new spreadsheet. You know, copy copy my template spreadsheet change all the prompts and paste the link back into StorySynth and boom, you have a game. Uh, and, and since then, it's just been a series of elaborations of like new formats, new uh, custom features and options. So like a quick tour of some of, of what's out there. The, the, the core, I think the flagship um, format is just shuffled, which is the For the Queen. You have one deck, uh, you have a series of ordered cards, which are your initial instructions, and then the rest are just prompts to be reshuffled uh, that you that you randomly draw that are asking you about, maybe it's about your character, or maybe it's about the setting. It's really up to you as a designer what those prompts are. Um, and from there, it was really easy to add on another format or twist on that format, which is multiple decks. So in uh, Every Alder is the Quiet Year, you have a deck for spring, then a deck for summer, then a duck, deck for fall, and a deck for winter. Um, so now you know, if you want a story that has a, a bit of an arc to it. So, you know, it could be season-based or it could be a classic three-act structure. You can have a different deck of prompts for each act. Uh, so I made it so that you can do that. And then mm. started playing around with some other formats. So uh, I added one that's phases. So phases, similar deck approach, but you're always rotating through and drawing from deck one, then deck two, then, then deck three, then back to deck one, two, three. And so uh, my game Around the Realm, um, which is a uh, the quick pitch for Around the Realm, it's uh, Jules Verne Around the World in 80 Days, but in like a magical fantasy world. Uh, and so you're telling the story of two companions as they race all the way around the realm to and try and get back home before the summer solstice because they've made a wager and they really don't want to lose it. Um, wow. And so, so in this case, the, I'm using the phases format and you are basically alternating through like a quirky mode of transportation. So we're, okay, we're, we're going via a nexus of portals or via a flying ship. And then the next prompt is going to be an escapade. Is it that we, there's a mutiny on board this, this means of transit? Uh, and then the next prompt um, just tells you, okay, resolve that. So it's like, get into trouble, get out of trouble, get into trouble, get out of trouble, as you sort of rotate around who's narrating. Um, and uh, so it's mode of transport, trouble, get out of trouble. And then it's you arrive at a new city, which might be uh, a city of animated skeletons controlled by necromancer bureaucrats. And so you have to describe the characters entering the city and some of the sights and sounds of the city. And then you draw the next card, which is okay. It's an ex escapade in the city. So you are, maybe there's a case of mistaken identity and they think that you are the great, you know, necromancer scholar. I don't know, whatever you want to make up. And uh, and suddenly, you know, you're, you've been sort of like brought in and they want you to be like teaching the, like a lecture hall full of budding necromancer bureaucrats. Um, and then you have to describe, okay, how, how do you resolve it? And so like this, this phases, like you're just going, um, going through and um, uh, narrating, okay, getting in trouble, getting out of trouble, and then whenever you want, you can return sort of back home by hitting a button that takes you to the ending sequence. Um, so a, a lot, I guess that was a long tangent into one specific game, but the, it sort of highlights my, my design. Like in this case, 
I was really excited to tell a game that involved phases. I think I had the idea for Around the Realm, but I didn't have an ability to do that in StorySynth. So that inspired me to be like, okay, cool. Let me just code it up. And now there's another way to build games in StorySynth. And I think I'll, I love this project because there's just endless cool directions to push it in. And whether it's being driven by, this seems like an interesting format, let me build it and then make a game for it. Or I really want to make this game, but I don't have the technology to do so. So let me build the technology. Uh, like both those are just like such a treat to explore. Um, not to mention all sorts of other extensions and formats. So if you want to keep track of characters or player turn order, there are all these extra little widgets that you can bake in if you want. But, mm-hmm. but again, like the, the what it's simplified down to from a design process is... For the most part, I could just start with like a creative writing exercise. So in Around the Realm, I, I think that the, the game design side of that started with, let me come up with a list of 20 cool fantasy, fantasy settings that are like isolated cities that, or regions that people might visit. And then let me separately come up with a bunch of complications. And then let me separately come up with uh, a bunch of modes of transit that are like whimsical or quirky. And it, it basically distills a lot of the game design down to just creative writing. And that's just, a, it's, a, it's a really fun treat. And then the ability to like spend... So I've actually, I've talked to friends who've built games with stories since. I was talking to uh, Raf D'Amico, who I mentioned earlier working on the Zone. Um, he designed a game inspired by the very creepy show Raised by Wolves um, about uh, children being raised by a robot on an alien planet. And so, so he sat down um, in the morning, spent maybe a half hour to an hour coming up with the game and the prompts, and then we played it. So like it, the entire process of like going from like idea to playtest was maybe an hour for him, which is like the coolest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing because a lot of people feel like that's me. I'm one of those people feel like they have to spend so long trying to polish mm, something that is going to be destroyed by play storming anyways. So, uh, I love that you've sort of facilitated a new, mm, I don't know if I want to say new, but a, a unique and innovative way to do the design process and also create design constraints because some of the, you know, like you said, there's this parallel design, um, uh, formatting that's happening here in that I want to put a cool game in here, but I don't have the tech. So now I work on tech. Cool. I have the tech for this game, or I want to put a game now that this tech is in existence, let me design a game using those principles. And they keep, uh, resonating with each other and forcing you to sort of expand until, you know, uh, you know, if that creativity stops producing juice for you and you leave story synth behind and it just exists, that's fine too. But I love that it is sort of, another it's almost like you create another framework game in a way uh that allows people to test the bounds of their creativity just another creative outlet i guess is what i'm ultimately trying to point to yeah totally and i think a lot of my my moment the momentum and the inspiration behind this is like i firmly believe that everyone can be a game designer and by lowering the friction to designing games lowering Mm -hmm. that barrier there, it just increases the odds that somebody's going to be able to take that first step and make something and have that joy of seeing something they made being played by people and people having fun and creating novel stories. And that's like, oh, it's the best. So if I can empower more people to do that, amazing. Where do you think the fu- uh, current nearest future of StorySynth is? Like, what do you think you want to add to its already existing state? So I think it's at a pretty good stable point for like a V1 uh, mm-hmm. some directions that I might go in. So there's more formats I want to I want to add. So right now you there isn't a format where you get to choose what deck you're drawing from. So I think that's like a probably an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there isn't a way of like holding hands privately cards privately in your hand. You're just always playing uh, one card at a time publicly. So I think some secret information might be an interesting direction. 
Um, mm. And other directions, like at some point I want to do a huge UX UI overhaul mm-hmm. uh, to make it... So, so uh, the way I wrote it, it is... Uh, instantly playable um, on mobile or on a browser, but it's the, the mobile version, while perfectly usable, it doesn't feel like it was designed mobile native. So there's some like visual bits I want to do there. Uh, the mm-hmm. big leap forward, which is going to be you know a lot more work. A lot of the features and projects are like, oh, yeah, this is an afternoon or this is a long weekend. The big thing I want to do at some point is to have really deep integration between the cards and game state. So so right now through some um, you know through custom option through adding a row to the top of your spreadsheet you can say hey I want some basic game state so track the the number of players uh, so okay here's here's an example like um, the number of um, crew members on a pirate ship the amount of resources uh, like the amount of gold that you or treasure that you've amassed and the um, amount of ammo you have left like you can do that easy state tracking but none of that tr- is connected to the cards themselves so mm. a bit of a re-architecting so that some cards will automatically start adjusting stats uh, mm-hmm. like that that is a super cool direction that I think opens up an even broader design space and at some point I'll take a week or two and maybe just try and hammer that one out but that's a that's a bigger <laughs> one to chew on and something I realized I'll call out because I didn't mention it earlier is uh, one of the design principles behind um, story synth is that you don't need to know anything about code. Uh, you can just throw in prompts and get going. But if you do know a little bit of code, specifically if you know a little bit of CSS, which is how you visually style things online, um, you can really get custom with how the game looks and feels. So uh, mm-hmm. changing around the fonts, the background color, the text color, the spacing, like uh, embedding images. There's actually a ton of flexibility because ultimately that cell, that prompt in the Google Sheet uh, gets reinterpreted uh, by StorySynth as HTML. So if you just put it as text, it'll be interpreted mm. as text, but you can throw in all the HTML tags you want, all the CSS you want, and it'll just work. So um, mm. lots of flexibility there to take it from like very, very simple first idea through to, to something that looks polished and distinct, and if you weren't told, maybe you wouldn't know it was a StorySynth game. Uh, that's amazing. And so we kind of have a, a clip of the far future, and I love that um, while the option is there and it may have some friction for people who are like, Ooh, I don't want to, you know, it's still usable, but I'm saying there's probably a person that is like, Oh, I don't really want to like super customize this. It doesn't fit my current needs and I don't want to learn CSS. What I, what I counter to that thought is that you're also allowing people to start learning about skills that they may not be utilizing, especially in a modern landscape, right? Like when we talk about HTML and CSS, at some point the new storefront is going to be a website. Like that's just, I mean, it is, I know people feel like I'm saying this people like, well, duh, Jeremy, that's already true. But like, it's going to be so much more the standard as time keeps moving forward. You know, there's all these innovations with, um, I watched some videos with Gary Vaynerchuk and Gary's always harping on, about the future of the virtual assistant, the series, the Google homes, the, uh, Alexa's and how, Alexa needs a website to order you food or product from with that voice command. So there are businesses and markets that are going to look to expand. Even mom and pop stuff is going to look to expand into the digital plane because that's going to be the version of least friction for those people. So uh, I love that you're sort of saying like, hey, you know, if you want to do some digital design, learn these relatively simple tools. Uh, obviously, it's not easy for everyone, but I, I, I love the poke at it. I love that that you're presenting that uh, permission that you can learn this too sort of thing. 
Yeah, and j- just like I firmly believe that everyone can design games, I believe that everyone can learn to code, and that, sort of as you were saying, it's a super empowering thing. Like, I, I'm not a, a classic, formally trained or classically trained uh, web developer. I, mm-hmm. I taught myself. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to build something like StorySynth without a lot of formal training or formal help, and um, a lot of it's just about little bite-sized projects and steps along the way. So to the extent that you're already starting to work on this, but you're intimidated by building a full website, it's mm-hmm. it's easy to say, cool, let me take a story synth game and just start by tweaking some of the CSS. And I don't need to worry about all the code everywhere else. I, you know, just a little bit of CSS here, and I can immediately see the impact because there's like a super quick feedback loop. I will say story synth itself is completely open source. So if you have mm. an idea for like a super funky format, well, first off, tell me because I might be excited about it and want to make it or work with you to make it. But but more to the point, if you want some like really bespoke customization or you want to build a game on StorySynth but then have it hosted on your own URL. Um, actually, I know of a team in Australia right now that's done that and they're they're actually using StorySynth for serious games with a client and they so they want it on their own like consulting domain. They, it's open source. They just um, were able to download StorySynth to their desktop, do a little bit of customization, um, rip out what they don't need, keep what they do, and... And voila. So, I mean, I, a lot of my ethos, and I think this echoes through my game design too, is that like everything's a remix and the more that's out there for people to play with, the more accessible things are, the more amazing things that we'll all see, the better off we will all be. So like a lot of my games are released under Creative Commons licenses and StorySynth is under an open source license so people can do whatever they want with the code. And like, I don't know, some of that might just be me. You, you mentioned SolarPunk. Like I love the SolarPunk vision and I feel like I'm very much a like post-scarcity guy who's yeah. living in a world that isn't post-scarce yet, but like, let's drive toward it. Let's, let's get there. Yeah. I'm super about it. I spoke with, uh, like I mentioned before, Tracy Barnett and they recently made a, uh, a business model for themselves where if you subscribe to their Patreon, you get all of their games full stop. Uh, everything that they'll put out, but what they've sort of transitioned into is saying, Hey, when I reach, 75 patrons I will re-update this game so creating like this altruistic atmosphere of like hey when everyone is paying for this uh and I feel like I've gotten the monthly income that I need to make this worth it uh everyone gets to benefit right and what that really and it's it's not uh it's all different tiers it's like 1 5 10 15 25 50 and you can pay whatever you feel is appropriate for the value that you're getting here but what's important about this is that it creates a version of accessibility that I think a lot of people are scared to do. I certainly am. I, I won't deny that. Like, I won't deny that I don't want to... There's a part of me that's scared to put out, like, any games I create for a dollar or free in some facet. But what Tracy points to is that not everyone's going to be willing to use Patreon for whatever reason, and not everyone lives in that Patreon atmosphere. So there will still be customers who will go to itch or go to the website or go to drive through or go to DMs Guild or wherever uh, their products are living and that will be their source. So they're still paying $25 for this PDF or 15 for this one or blah, 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 blah. Um, so the incomes are varying, but it creates different value options for people and allows them to customize their interaction with Tracy's brand and their games. So when you talk about commercial licensing and open sourcing and creating an environment where everything's a little bit more accessible for a wide spectrum of people and that they get to take control of their creative um, consumption, then uh, I agree. I feel like we would be in a way stronger place. We would see a lot of new, because we talk about remixing, right? There's a lot of people who say that uh, original ideas don't exist anymore. And I don't know if that's, 
100% true because, and this is speaking to the vacuum that is American culture, we ignore a lot of marginalized voices, right? So we don't get to see them in the mainstream. We don't get to see their experiences or their perspectives in mainstream medias, games, films, TV, music, whatever have you. Uh, and so technically those are original ideas that have not been developed in. And if we create spaces that allow people or give people permissions to be like, Hey, you're welcome here too. play with what you want, do with it what you will, and let's create something better and let's be kind to each other. You know, I'm not here for the plagiarism conversation, right? The, the pirating, but, um, you know, I think there's something to be said by, Putting, making your stuff open, making accessible to all the different people who may not be making enough to splurge. They would consider us, uh, you know, money is relative. So $8 to them is food for the next day. You know what I mean? So, and there are other people who are like, $50 is no problem. I'll spend, <laughs> I'll spend $300 on Invisible Sun. No worries, you know, uh, and I love it. Uh, I just wanted to say that that's all to say I love it. Yeah, I'm 100% with you on, on everything you just said. And I think yeah. um, I think there's lots of meaningful discussions about how we price our work and because we don't want to um, depreciate the whole value of the category by making right. things cheap, but we want to make it as accessible and inclusive as possible, especially to, to folks who are marginalized, don't have, don't have a lot of, of money to spend on things like this. Part of the way I've threaded the needle there is for, for the few things I have on itch that are paid, uh, having a, a price that seems like a, a nice high fair price that's mm-hmm. not like depreciating the category, but then having unlimited community copies virtually. Like, you know, th- a thousand community copies that I'll keep refreshing periodically that make it so that nobody, even if they have the slightest reservation of like, oh, I don't know if community copies for me, like there's no scarcity there. There's so many community copies, just just take it, enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I think the, it goes back to a theme that we've talked about a few times is called like, how do we make it as easy as possible for people to start designing? And I, I know games that have been open sourced or have SRDs, tend to be great on-ramps. So I know like lasers and feelings is, is most likely a lot of people's, it's like a very easy first thing to hack So you choose two mm-hmm. stats and, and then you have a game. Um, mm-hmm. Or for the queen, likewise, it's just creative writing. You're coming up with a bunch of prompts. So I think the, the more we can encourage people to create these free on-ramps where people just know they can create the thing and then they have a game that they can share and they, they're not worried about piracy if they're sharing because you know they have the creator's permission. Ah, uh, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's great. It's the future. I want that future. Damn it. Post-scarcity uh, now. <laughs> woo! Woo! Uh, with that, then, uh, thank you for d- diving into Story Synth with us. Uh, please use it. Please explore it. Please design games for it. I think it's, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of modern and electronic and the future when it comes to game design and really considering the digital landscape. Uh, and, you know, it's not like there's not a place for pen and pen and pencil but or pen and paper, but... The future is coming. It's not going to be stopped. Uh, Randy, I want to thank you for being here today on Draw Your Dice. Uh, One last quick plug, reiteration, where can they find you? Where can they get this stuff? Uh, All of Randy's information will be down in the show notes, along with some of the um, articles that we've been talking about throughout the show will be down there as well for listeners. So you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Randy Lubin uh, or on my website, randylubin.com, for all of the broader things I'm doing. My consumer games live at diegeticgames.com. My uh, serious games live at leveragedplay.com. And StorySynth is storysynth.org. Um, there are, uh, I think, seven or eight games already up there that uh, I've made and other people have made, too. Um, if you make a game, I would love to hear about it. I'd love to add it to the gallery. If you want more features uh, to be added, please reach out there, too. I'm always, like, looking... F- I'm Part of what, what gives me motivation is, like, oh, somebody wants to make something and they want a feature for it. Cool, let me go code that up. So mm-hmm. 
please don't be a stranger. Reach out, share what you're working on. Um, and then, yeah, Jeremy, thank you so much for having me on the program. This is a super fun conversation for me to have. Uh, I've really enjoyed your questions and your extra thoughts and like the, the different um, model, mental models that you've had that you've shared too. So this has been a huge treat for me. Woo! It's just two... I'll say it, two geniuses in a room just chatting. You know what I mean? Just chat. <laughs> I have zero games. I'm I'm not a genius by it, but Randy is. F- follow Randy, follow Randy's blog, listen to Randy. Randy's got good stuff. Um, with that, thank you everyone for coming in today. Thank you for listening with us. I learned a lot from Randy. I hope you certainly did too, and we will catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Randy. Bye, people. <laughs> bye, people. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Randy and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Randy or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time.